pull up your socks now. <laughs> Thank you to our worship ministry, and man, the band is rocking today. Grateful to them as well. If you're a guest of ours today, thank you for joining us. You really have honored us by your attendance today, and we don't say that lightly. Uh, we believe that there's not a chance outside of the sovereign movement of God that you're here, and just wanted to pause and just say thank you for your coming today. It tells us that the Spirit of God is very much at work in you and in this place, and we thank you for being part of that. So let's look to this 80th Psalm today as we are in Advent the first week. The 80th Psalm is one of those that will help us to think about from a historical perspective what was longed for with the Messiah. Now last year this time we began to talk to you about Advent and even introduce Advent to us as a church. It's a long tradition of the church, uh, but we had not been participating in Advent in its traditional format. So we introduced the lighting of candles and the specific colors and uh, the scriptural text and the themes for Advent. We introduced that last year. And rather than going and introducing all that again and sort of coaching us along the way, let's just do it. And I think that you'll pick up on it as we go. You'll see certain candles are lit on certain Sundays, and there's certain themes regarding each week. Uh, you'll pick up on it, especially if you're going to use the Advent guide that's available for you, and you talk through it with your family, or maybe you read it uh, yourself, and just be encouraged by God's great movement during this season. So today we begin to talk about Christ coming as the Redeemer in a prophesied way. It was the looking forward to the coming of Christ as the one who would take care of the sins of the world. It's the first Advent. But you notice that Advent is not just about the birth of Christ in the flesh, God being made available to us and coming for us, but it's also Advent the second time, which is the second return, the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. The first time he came real humbly in a manger, the second time he's going to come very much gloriously, and all the world will see him. It was like not very many people saw him in his first advent. It was just a few, the shepherds to begin with, and a few others, and then later, a couple of years, wise men came seeking him out. But in the second coming, the glorious appearance of Christ, all the world will see him, and it will be an amazing sight. And every knee will bow and every tongue will certainly confess in that day that Jesus Christ is Lord. But as we talk today, we're going to look at a Christmas song. It's actually 2,700 years old. This song was first sung 700 years before the first Christmas. So this is a Christmas song. It's different than most of our Christmas songs. In fact, when you think of Christmas songs, you might think about this song from Andy Williams. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You want to sing along? There'll be much mistletoeing. Go ahead, you're bobbing along. When loved ones are near. It's, it's the, the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, you sound great. Or maybe you're the older group from October 1965. Burl Ives gave us this song. Everybody nod in unison. 
Kind of makes you want to ride a horse, doesn't it? I don't know if there'll be snow. <laughs> that may be the kind of Christmas songs that you're listening to right now. And I'm just going to be very honest with you. If you look at my Spotify playlist, you'll find those two songs on there as well. But those are not genuine Christmas songs. This is not the most grand time of the year for those who are still apart from God. This is not the most holly and jolly of times for those who reject the Son of God. And so we just need to pause in this beginning of Advent to say there is peace and joy and there is celebration that comes at Advent, the coming of Christ that's different from the way the world defines that. So I'd like for us to dial back a little bit. Now, before you get all mad at me, I still sing Christmas songs in my car and in my house, and I'll continue to do so. But I'm understanding, as you are, the difference between a Christmas song, a genuine Christmas song, and one that's a holiday song. Here's a genuine Christmas song. I want us to read it together, Psalm 80. See if this doesn't get you in the mood for Christmas. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Hey, by the way, I want to read the white. You read what's in the yellow. We'll read that part together. Give ear, O uh, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them their tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God, o Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, that's a Christmas song, right? <laughs> well, you're saying that doesn't sound like much of the lyrics of Christmas songs that we have today, and you're absolutely right. This wouldn't be one that we would just think of the holly jolly Christmas season. In fact, it's everything but that. It's actually moving us to understand that there is a deep need, a deep longing among the people of Israel for the Messiah. And that's important for us to get because sometimes in the midst of Christmas, you and I think about the Lord's coming and his redemptive work in us and his coming again, and we fail to reflect on the hundreds of years prior to his coming, the deep need and longing of the people for their Messiah. And the psalmist helps us to see that over and over in Psalms. There's a deep written song that tells the expression of their anguish and their need for the Savior to come. Who will deliver us? Who will take this sin from us? Who will be our righteousness? Who will be our king? Those are the Psalms that help lead us into Advent to help us to know that the Messiah was promised and he was cherished. Now, the reason why that's important is not for its historical stance, although that is important, but to recognize that today there are billions of people in the world 
who do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There are many, many people who have never heard the gospel proclaimed. They need to know the gospel. They have a deep longing within them. They have a deep need in them and a deep hope that one day this is going to all make sense. And what they need is for the church to recognize that lostness, to recognize that position of hunger and thirst and great need so that the church might rise up and let them know the good news that Jesus Christ has come. So Advent has its place for us in this first Sunday as we dwell on the great need and the promise that was the Messiah to come. Now, let me just mention three points about this psalm. There are many others that we could, but for time's sake, we'll just talk about these three. The first is this, that Advent affords people the opportunity to recognize and acknowledge their need for restoration and redemption. When we come to Advent to begin with, we're doing those things. We're acknowledging our need to be redeemed and to be restored. Now in this song, the writer helps us to see that. And he's using what is customary, uh, in a customary way, uh, is, is an embraced way of God with his people. For instance, when we think about us praying to God, we think about that prayer being in communion with God, that God is hearing us and that God is intent to listen to us. And that we are intent to listen to Him. It's a celebrated time that God has provided for us in Christ that we could approach Him, the great God of the universe, and do it with great boldness because of what Christ has accomplished. So prayer is a big thing to us, no doubt. But here, prayer is said to be different. That God is not pleased with the prayers of His people. In fact, He's angered at their prayers. So we catch up front that something is amiss, something is not in sync with the people of God, that God is not inclining his ear with favor towards them in their prayer. And normally when we think about God and Israel, we think about the great care and the provision that God has given them by providing them bread to eat. Remember when they came out of Egypt and were making their journey to the promised land of Israel, that God provided for them in the desert Bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And so we think about bread and God, and we think about his care, his provision, and his love for people. But yet in this psalm, the bread is made with tears. And when we think about God in relationship to his people Israel, a chosen people, we think about his love for them and his care and nurture for them, that he is their God and they are his people. But yet in this psalm, It's not like that. God is not seen to favor the people. In fact, God is seemingly against the people. And the contentions of the countries around them are against Israel as well. In fact, the very people that God says, you will honor me and I will be a light in the midst of you, has now become the laughingstock of all the area. So we know without any question that this is a time in the history of Israel that everything was amok. Everything was out of sort as it should be in relationship to God. And there was a great need for God to move. If the people could have changed it, they would have changed it. But the people couldn't change it. And isn't that just like us? If there are times in our lives that we're amiss, that things are not in sync, that they are not as they should be, 
maybe our prayer life is not in communion with God. Or maybe we sense that the rebellion of those around us is making a mockery against us. Or maybe people are saying, oh, if your God really loved you, he would do this for you or that for, for you. Or he would answer you in this way or that way. But God's not doing that. Why is God doing this to the people? Why is God allowing this to be done? Well, the same questions could come to us, couldn't they? God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Why this time of suffering, Lord? Why this time of pain? Why these people against me? God, what are you doing? Well, I can't explain what God is doing in every one of you, but I do know this. God will not waste a single hurt in your life. The hurt in your life will actually move you to a restoration or a repentance, a movement of redemption, and God will do it every time. Would you let him do that? Would you let him make his move in your life in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through so that it might be a restoration season for you? Or for some of you that it might be the redeeming season of your life when you come to the end and say, only God can do this. That's the first week of Advent. It's his promise that he can and he will and he has. So this, is see, this season affords us the opportunity to recognize and acknowledge that only God can bring restoration. That's what our city needs. In the time of division in a time where our state is polarized against itself and against the nation. This is what we need. We need to recognize our great need for restoration in God. We need to come to the place of hoping in Christ Jesus, not in somebody else, but in Christ Jesus. Not it's something's going to get better, or I can do it better, or I can do it differently, but we just come to a point of surrender to say, but God, if you will, it will be in Christ Jesus. And we submit ourselves to that. It's the great need for some of you in this room to be rightly restored to God. This is the beginning of Advent for you to come to that understanding that only God can be the restorer and bring you to that place. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully because I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that I hate Christmas music, but I don't because I don't. But the world attempts to make this season appear to be good with or without God. The world attempts this to be the greatest time of the year and puts on all the frills and all the lights and all the razzle-dazzle and all the gift-giving and all the celebrating and the partying and all that in hopes that you will gloss over the fact that you are in need of great restoration. Christ is the Redeemer. He's the restorer. He's the rebuilder of all that is broken. Would you let this season not be glazed over, but would you let it be a pressing to God through His Son, Jesus Christ? For without Jesus, the healer, people remain broken. And without Jesus, the hope, people remain hopeless. And without Jesus, the peacemaker, people never experience genuine peace. So this is the season that we as the church press to Jesus, the great Redeemer and the great Restorer. When people come to a point of surrender unto Christ, He redeems, He restores, and He writes things. They begin to experience His love and His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and His compassion, and that brings real peace and joy. 
Oh, I pray that you find the realness of Jesus during this season. So God is longing for you to experience restoration. I really believe that to be true. And are those things that you're longing for, restoration and redemption? And if so, ask God. Ask God to move and press into you. His response is going to be, I've made the promise that the restoration would come in Christ. And he will tell you with all certainty, and I will testify that it is true, that he is the restorer and the one to redeem you. All right, point number two. This Advent, Jesus wants people to experience him as good shepherd who lovingly provides for them. And you hear it in the psalmist's words. And there are many names throughout the Bible that the psalmist could have chosen in this psalm, the 80th psalm. There are many names that dictate about who God is, his character, who he's made himself to be known as. In fact, if you look at some of the names that are on the screen right now, El Shaddai, El Elyon, uh, Adonai, Jehovah Nisi, all those names have a testimony about the character of God. In fact, if you look in the scripture, when you find one of those names first surfacing, it typically is God making himself known in that way to somebody or people. And they sort of drive a stake in the ground and they say, oh, this is the way I now know God to be. And they drive that stake and they make a, a marker there. To say, I know God to be this. It's all about the character of God. So in the 80th Psalm, the psalmist could have chosen any number of those names and even many others. But instead, he chose one. He chose him to be known as shepherd. He's calling out to God as shepherd, and rightfully so, because the shepherd is one who lovingly provides for his own. And the shepherd is one who is an attentive overseer. He's not, he's not just letting things pass. He, he's not standoffish, but he's, he's eager with love to participate and to guide and to provide and to oversee. And he's protective as a guardian. That's what a shepherd does. In fact, another psalm is written, the 23rd psalm, which talks about the good shepherd, our father as well. He's the shepherd who provides for his own. Such is the provision of the shepherd, God, that we are without want. The psalmist says that he leads us to the places where we can have good food to drink, to eat, and good water to drink. It's where we can find rest and refreshment, spiritually and otherwise, in the presence of God. And it's there that he leads us to the way of God. He, he leads us in righteousness. He restores our soul, the 23rd Psalm says. Well, even though we walk through very difficult valleys, he's there. He's guiding us. He's protecting us. He's anointing us. So it's no doubt that he would choose shepherd because he's, he wants to know the love of God. It's that way for us as well. That God is identifying himself in those ways as the good shepherd. He explains that he knows the sheep and the sheep know him as well. And as the good shepherd, he works to provide an abundance, not just for this life, but the life to come, eternal life as well. So if you're in need of restoration, then call out to Jesus. He's the restorer. Whatever brokenness you're experiencing right now, call out to Jesus. He's the healer. He's the one who will rebuild that in your life. Call out to him now and desire the fullness that only he can provide through his son, Jesus Christ. And he provides it, how? But by laying down his life for his sheep. He does it in a sacrificing way. 
He laid down his life so that he might provide for us righteousness. And he might provide, provide for us eternal life and abundant life. Now here's what he says. Give ear, O shepherd, who are enthroned on the cherubim. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you read a phrase like that, and it sort of doesn't take root very quickly, so you just kind of move past it. But pause. Give ear, O shepherd. Listen to the bleeding of your sheep. Listen to our call. Listen to the place that we're in. Listen to our request, because we know things are amiss. Listen to us, you who are enthroned on the cherubim. All right, enthroned means there's a king seated, right? The cherubim tells us something different. Now, if you're Israel, this immediately paints a very vivid picture. In fact, it's in your handouts on the screen right now. It'd be of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents God's enthroned power among Israel. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's presence was. He ruled from that place. If you remember, the instructions were given to Moses in detail about how that ark would be, what it would be made of, and what would go in it. And God had chosen it to be overlaid with great gold, and in it would be various items, including the tablets of the Ten Commands that God had given to his people, the way that God gave them to live. So now God is enthroned on the cherubim among the people. His presence is there. Now the slab, the top lid there is actually a solid gold slab piece with hammered out cherubim on each side, extending their wings as God commanded it to be built that way, and their head bent downward as if they're in awe of what this mercy seat, as it's called, is doing, what it's, what it's representing. So now they're looking down at the mercy seat. I just need to remind us for a moment that the angels of God are mystified by this whole notion of mercy that God extends to us. For the angelic host, when a third of them rebelled against God, God cast them out in judgment to no longer be in the dwelling place of God. They never knew God's mercy. So when God extends mercy to us who are rebellious sinners against Him, when He shows mercy to us, the angelic host, is in awe of that. And they celebrate and they worship the God who is so merciful of his prized creation that he would forgive us of our sin. Now for Israel, that demonstration took place one time a year. It was the Day of Atonement. It's the same word for this lid, the covering, the atonement. He the high priest would once a year take blood from the sacrifice and go into the most holy place where this ark was and the mercy seat was positioned, and he would sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat to atone, to cover over the sins of the people. And in that, the cherubim are looking and watching with great amazement in this holy moment, and there God is enthroned. Now, why would the psalmist tell us these things? Give ear, O shepherd, you who are enthroned on the cherubim. What he is saying is, give ear to us, O king, the one who has made sacrifice for us. 
and atones for our sins. Give ear in your mercy and come to us, you who are enthroned on cherubim. What a beautiful picture that is of Jesus. 700 years before his birth, 733 years before his crucifixion. What a picture that is of him who is going to be the response to that great need. So Advent helps us to be mindful and celebrate that Jesus has come to provide for that salvation. He is the sacrifice whose life was given, whose blood was shed, and never need to be shed again. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Jesus made sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Whereas the yearly sacrifices of the Day of Atonement continued, the sacrifice of Jesus put it all to rest. And aren't we grateful for that? So he says, give ear, O shepherd, you who are enthroned upon, upon the cherubim. But now look at this next little phrase. Uh, maybe it, I didn't put that up there. He talks about uh, giving ear and then letting the face shine. Sorry about that, Sharon. I jumped a little bit ahead. Let your face shine. It's a very poetic saying of let the king turn his attention to us and let his smile be towards us. In fact, if you have a different translation other than the ESV, you might find it saying something like that. That let his smile be upon us. You can see the imagery of one who approaches the king. And the king turning to him. And the reaction and the response of that person he's looking to is going to tell that individual whether he is going to receive mercy or he's going to receive the judgment of the king. But when the king turns and his expression is a smile, it tells the person standing before the king that he has favor of the king. So now the psalmist is saying, in anticipation of this Messiah, turn to us, God, our king, and let your face shine. Let your smile be gazed upon us. How is that so? You might say, Randy, what do I have to do to have God smile at me? Oh, my friends, this is the glory of Christmas. It's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's what's already been accomplished by Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice has made it so that God's face shines upon us. Isn't that glorious? the glory and the wonder of Christmas. And that brings me to number three. Advent stirs us to hope in the person of Jesus Christ who gives us life and enables us to follow him. He says in verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Now, Bible scholars kind of differ on the person who's talked about the right hand of God, the Son of Man. Some say it's in reference to Israel, that Israel is now the right hand of God and the Son of Man. Others will say, no, it's not Israel. It's King David, who's king over Israel. It's him who's at the right hand of God and the Son of Man. I don't know that it's either one of those, but I know this that all scholars agree that whether it's Israel in the intermediate or David in the forefront, Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the one who's at the right hand of God the Father. He is the one who is the Son of Man. There was a first Adam, there was a second Adam. The first Adam was filled with sin and death. The second Adam is filled with life and righteousness. And he's the one. He's the Son of Man. And he's made himself available to us. 
He's made it so that we can have life in Him and that we can live out this life of righteousness by His Spirit that dwells within us. This is the hope of Advent, that Christ has come to save the world, and He has. It stirs within us a great understanding of the restoration and the redemption of Jesus Christ such that we ought to share that with other people. Let it be so to the glory of Christ Jesus. This first Advent is a celebration that God made a promise And as we go through Advent, we're going to see the fulfillment of that promise. We're going to see an invitation extended to all people towards that promise. And we're going to rally the cry that his promise is he's coming again. Gloriously, he's coming again. Right now, we're helping people to see the need for restoration. Helping them to press into that hopelessness that is there without Jesus. And then lighting the light by sharing the word that he has come. That redemption is theirs if they'll receive it by faith. God sent his son full of life, full of light to people who were full of darkness and full of sin. God sent his son to come to us because we had turned our back against him. That's the glory and the wonderment of Advent. It's the most wonderful time of the year for those who understand that and have by faith trusted that God sent his son. What about you? The secular holiday sings of this jolly season. But first, we must sing the song of sorrow. A godly sorrow over our sin and receiving that understanding and singing that song, when we turn our attention by faith to God, He will give to us a new song. And it's a song not of sorrow. It's a song of hope. It's a song of genuine joy. It's a song of glad tidings and peace. And He'll put that song in your heart and it will be forever there. It will be sung throughout all eternity. Let Him put that song there. Some of you need to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The place to begin is to recognize your need for the Savior and press to the one who can save. Some of you are in need of restoration. Your life is broken. Well, you know God like Israel knew God. They had seen his presence. You know his word like Israel knew his word. They had it with them. But you're in need of restoration like Israel was in need of restoration. Your prayer life is askew. The communion that you and God once had is not the same. Those around you mock you. In your brokenness, you're wondering, where is God? And God is saying, I'm right there, wanting to restore you. Wanting like a good shepherd to seek after my lost sheep, bring them back into the fold. Some of you are right there, and you're hearing the voice of Jesus by his Spirit call out to you in your heart. Say yes to him. Come to him. The fact that you're hearing his voice tells you of his great love and grace towards you. Receive it. Let this Advent be another reminder that he has great love for you.
And he has made great provision for you. And he will take that which is broken and he will rebuild it. That doesn't mean that this world is not going to be marked with brokenness. It is. It's marked with sin and brokenness. But he will bring you into a new kingdom which does not experience that brokenness. For now, it will be a spiritual kingdom for you. But one day, it will be a physical kingdom. And for all those who are alive in it spiritually, when he ushers it in physically, he will draw them into that kingdom. And you will experience a life without tears and without pain and suffering and disease and death. No sin. But for today, you need restoration. And come to him. Today, You need redemption. Let him purchase you with his own blood. Now, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? I just want to ask you to turn those words into a prayer. For you who are in need of saving faith, God will pour out measure of faith for you. It's part of his grace to you. It's all a work of God's goodness in your life. If you're here and you're at the point that the psalmist was in your brokenness, And you come before the Father and say, Give, O ear, O shepherd, you who are enthroned on the mercy seat of the cherubim. Give ear to me. He will. But you come to him and let him write you in your relationship with him by taking away your sin, nailing it to Jesus on the cross, and giving you the credit for the righteousness of Christ and a new way of life as one resurrected to walk in newness of life. What do I do? You come to him in faith and surrender all things to him. Turn from your own ways and press to his ways. Some of you need to move in faith to that. This could be the day of salvation for you. I pray that it is. Others of you are distant and removed from God and he's calling to restore you on this first Sunday of Advent. The fact that you're hearing that call tells you that he still has great love and affection for you. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy. He's an accuser of the brethren, trying to make you to stay away, not engage in the things of God, but listen to the love of God as he's calling you back to himself. Walk step by step back into this fold. It's where the peace and the rest will be. It's where the communion And love will be shared. Come to Christ. He's calling out. Just take him by his hand and come to him. Be restored. So Father, I pray as people will respond in an obedient way to you, by your Spirit's call and by the love of Christ that's already demonstrated, I pray that he would be lifted up and honored and glorified by anyone who's transformed. Lord, we pray for you to do what only you can do We don't want to gloss over anything. We want to press to where there's pain and suffering and say, God, please be the rebuilder, be the restorer, be the one to redeem. Reconcile this and trust that you'll do it. We ask this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?